Romans chapter 1. And tonight, I'm going to be reading for us beginning in verse 8. Verse 8. As we move into this, this new section of the book. Excuse me while I take a sip of water. Beginning in verse 8, Paul says this to the Roman Christians. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, I've entitled this message tonight, A Display of Love. A Display of Love. Because what we have here in verses 8 through 10 is an example to us of what it is to genuinely love someone. Paul, in these verses, in this paragraph, is communicating his affection and his love for these Christians in Rome. In verses 8 through 10, I see his love expressed for them in three ways. First, he thanks God for them. Second, he prays for them. And third, he longs to see them. The remarkable thing to keep in mind as we talk about all this is that these are, by and large, strangers to Paul. It's not as if he has spent time with them, gotten to know them, broken bread with them, you know, told stories with them, gone fishing with them, hung out. You know, it's not as if he has a relationship with them and then maybe there was a, a teary-eyed farewell and now he's apart, but he longs to be reunited to them. It's not like that at all. He's never met these people. And yet he informs us that they are continually on his mind and on his heart. He is grateful for them. And he is lifting them up regularly before the Father. He longs to soon be with them so that he can begin a relationship with them. Our love for one another and for all the people of God should be evidenced in these same ways. If we love one another, we should be regularly giving thanks to God for one another. Are we? Is that a part of your life? A regular, daily part of your life? If we have love for one another, we should be regularly lifting one another up in prayer, intercessory prayer. Are we? Is that a part of your life? 
If we have love for one another, we ought to delight in fellowship with one another and long for our opportunities to be together, to develop our relationships and mutually benefit one another with our faith. Is that a part of your life? Do you love the fellowship of the saints? Look with me first at verse 8, where we see Paul's love expressed through gratitude. He says, first... Now what's interesting about that is he never says second and third and fourth. In other words, he he says first, but it's not as if he has a list in his mind, you know, I'm going to say this, 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 and this, and and now he's just beginning to check off the list. It's it's not like that at all. Rather, Paul seems to use this word first to express that what he is about to say rightfully comes before the rest of the letter. What he's about to say about his thanksgiving for this church and his love towards them and his longing to be with them, that must come first, he says, then the doctrinal teaching, then the practical instruction. It's been said, if I can remember how to say it right, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Have you ever heard that before? I think what Paul is doing here is he, he realizes, and he's teaching us as well, that before we teach people and try and help people and communicate knowledge to people, they need to first know our love for them. As I thought about this on Thursday, this had a lot to say to me as a preacher. It is important for me to understand that all of of my preaching and teaching of the Word of God will be less well-received and less well-heeded if the congregation I'm preaching to doesn't know that my preaching and teaching is motivated by a heart of love. If you do not know that I love you, if you do not know that I am thankful for you, then my preaching will mean less to you and will be less effective in your life. I have far too often told this congregation from the pulpit, I love you. And I have failed on far too many occasions to show that love outside of these four walls. So I thought about that on Thursday. I sat in my office and cried because I could name several specific examples of times when I failed to be a pastor as I ought to be a pastor. I was reminded how far I have to go to even be a halfway decent pastor when it comes to showing love outside of this hour of our moments together in preaching. And so I, was, I wrote down several specific examples of ways in the next year I want to practically show my thankfulness for, for you and my love to you outside of this, this room. And I ask your forgiveness for times when I felt to do that. And I ask you to be patient with me because I'll be quite honest. I was very, it, was, it was in my face on Thursday how much I still battle selfishness and pride and love for myself that keeps me from showing the love for others that I should. And so I ask for your forgiveness and I ask for your prayers. And I would ask you this. How might this also apply 
in your life. This truth that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This, this principle that we should express love for people before we communicate knowledge to people. How, how would that apply to your life? What situation in your life does that perhaps affect? It's very poignant here for Paul because again, Paul had never met these people. So here is Paul communicating his love to them. And, and as, as you'll see, I hope over the next couple of weeks, Paul is desperate to communicate his love to them because he's never hugged them, right? He's never, he's never seen them face to face and preached to them. He's never washed their feet, right? He's never been there to serve them. And so the only thing he has to say, I love you, are his words. And yet he's trying to express, first of all, before I, before I tell you about the gospel, before I tell you about the glorious promises of God, before I tell you about God's sovereignty and Israel and the Gentiles, and before I tell you about how you're to live together as a church, and before I talk to you about my desire to, to partner with you in missions, this has to come first. I love you, and you are continually in my heart and mind, and I lift you up to God every day. That's the kind of love we're to have for one another. And, and to be honest, it's the kind of love we're to have for all the people of God, even those we've never laid eyes on. Now notice what Paul is thankful for. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And there are two very, very important truths that I see here. First, we see the truth that faith is a gift from God. Paul says, I am thankful for you, and in particular, I'm thankful to God because of your faith. Why else would Paul thank God for their faith? Unless it is God who gives the faith, right? And so... There's a reason that Paul says, doesn't say, there's a reason that Paul does not say, I give thanks to you Roman Christians for your faith in the world. No, 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 no. He says, I want you to know that I thank God for your faith. Paul teaches explicitly in 2.8, Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you are saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift. Of God. Today, Brother Dax and Brother Sherwood have served us at the soundboard and with the screen, and we're thankful for them doing that. But how much sense would it come? How much sense would it make for me to, to, to come to Ronnie and to say, Ronnie, I thank you for serving us on the soundboard today? Does that make any sense? No. No, you thank the one who does the service, right? Well, the reason Paul gives thanks to God for their faith is God is the one who did the act. God is the one who gave the faith. There's something else that we see here. Paul not only gives thanks to God, but notice he gives thanks to God through Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Through Jesus Christ. And that's interesting because it was through Jesus Christ that God gave the faith, right? We saw this morning, right, that, that, that Jesus... Let me just remind you of what we've seen. At his resurrection, Jesus, 
was declared by the Father. He was appointed the Son of God in power according to the Holy Spirit. He was, he was set on a throne. He was given all authority and power. He was made the king over all and, and made the mediator between God and men. And now God has given all things to Christ for Christ to distribute among all people as he wills. And so God gave the, the, the ability to grant faith. He entrusted that fully to Jesus. And then Jesus on his throne distributes faith as he wills through the Holy Spirit. And so it was through Jesus that God gave us faith. And now it is through Jesus that we give our thanks to God. John Owen uh, beautifully talks about this idea of Jesus as the mediator between us and God this way. He says, The Father communicates all his love to us through Christ. And we pour out all our love to the Father only through Christ. Christ is the treasury in which the Father places all the riches of his grace taken from the bottomless mine of his eternal love. And Christ is the priest into whose hand we put all the offerings that we wish to give to the Father. And so whether it is God's gift of grace to us or whether it is our gift of worship to God, it always goes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says, I am giving thanks to God for you, but of course I am giving that thanks in the name of Jesus through Jesus. So we see here that faith is a gift from God. We also see here, by the way, and I'll only talk about this for a minute because we've talked about it many times, but it is here, we actually see here the truth that churches are to be made up of believers only. And the reason I say that is notice the assumption in what Paul is saying. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for some of you, for all of you, because your, plural, your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And so Paul's assumption in this letter to the church in Rome is that all of the members of the church in Rome have faith. And so it's just another example in Scripture of this truth being taught that churches are to be made up of believers and believers only. Now, Paul says that the faith of these Christians was being proclaimed in all the world. Of course, when he says all the world... He means all the Roman world. Um, you remember in, in Luke 2, we're getting close to Christmas, and you'll start hearing Luke 2. Remember how Luke 2 begins, came to pass that Caesar Augustus declared that all the world should be registered. What did the Cherokee Indians and, you know, and the, the Native Americans, did they go and get registered? Of course not. Right? It's talking about the Roman world. It's talking about the world that was known by these people at this time. And that's exactly the world that, that Paul is talking about here. He's saying throughout the whole Roman Empire, throughout this whole civilized world, people are talking, in particular, other Christians have heard of the faith of this church in Rome. And why were the Christians throughout the empire excited about and spreading the news about the faith of this church in Rome? Well, I think it was partly because of the various persecutions and trials that these Christians were having to endure. 
And the story of how these men and women were holding fast to Christ there in the belly of the beast was a testimony, an inspiration, an encouragement, a means of grace to other Christians suffering trials around the world. And then also, on top of that, Rome was the capital city of the empire. Rome was the city of greatest influence. To hear that there was an active, vibrant church in Rome was an encouragement because it meant that the gospel was now well-situated to be spread out from Rome into all the various regions of the world. It was strategically important that there be faithful believers in Rome if the gospel was going to reach the nations and the Great Commission was going to be accomplished. And so it was, it was something that excited other believers, the, the believers in Ephesus and Antioch and Corinth and Philippi. It was good news to them to learn about what God was doing at that church in Rome. Mount Hermon, we must not have a selfish, our church and our church alone mentality. We, got, we need to be able to rejoice when other churches are doing well. When someone comes and tells you about how God is saving people at a place, and if someone tells you about how a church is sending out missionaries, and if you you hear news about people being baptized and about disciples being made, you don't need to to just say, oh, that's just not our church. No. We need to be able to rejoice in what God is doing among his people around the world. Be encouraged by it. It's not a us versus them when it comes to us and other churches. It's us with them as far as truth in the gospel will allow. So bringing us back to the big picture, Paul is communicating his love for this church by expressing his gratitude to God for them. And by the way, this is the same man who told us in Ephesians 5.20... He said that we are to give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here he is setting the very example of what he taught us to do. So we've seen Paul's love expressed in thanksgiving. Now let's see it expressed in prayer. Expressed in prayer. Beginning in verse 9 into verse 10. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Paul identifies God as his witness that these Christians are consistently, continually in his prayers. This is serious to Paul because it is possible that some of these Christians in Rome might have thought that Paul was being less than truthful. In a minute, he's going to tell them that he's been praying that he might come and see them. But some of these Roman Christians might have been thinking, well, if Paul really cares so much about us, how come he has not come and seen us in the last two decades? He's had his ministry... Apostle to the Gentiles. Here we are, the strategically important Gentile, majority Gentile church. Paul, you want us to believe that you care so much about coming? It's been 20 years. And so Paul 
calls on God as his witness. He, he uses very solemn language here, almost a courtroom oath kind of language. God is my witness. Nobody else is a witness to Paul's private prayer life, but God is in Paul's private prayer life. So he says, I call on God as my witness that when I pray, you are on my heart and mind. I am praying for you. Paul says, I call on the God whom I serve with my spirit. That is his his inner being, the, the very core of who Paul is. Paul is saying, this is the God whom I've given everything to. The gospel of his son is my very life. And I call on him to give witness that I'm telling you the truth. You do mean this much to me. Apparently, If we look at the other letters of Paul, we conclude that praying for the churches of God was a very important part of Paul's prayer life. It seems that daily Paul was on his knees praying for the churches of God around the world. Now, in his day, he could probably name most of them, if not all of them. There were certainly not thousands or hundreds of thousands of churches like there are today. He knew of most of the churches throughout the Roman Empire, so he could get on his knees and he could start praying, Father, there's the church in Rome, and there's the church in Ephesus, and there's the church in Corinth, and there's the church in Jerusalem, and Father, I'm going to lift, and he prayed for them specifically. He, he knew from messengers their different needs. He was hearing from others what was happening in these churches, and so he could lift up the burdens of all these churches. He was a big picture prayer. Right? didn't just pray for the specific needs of the specific church of where he was at that day and time. He was praying the big picture, all these things that God was doing. Now, you and I probably can't do that, but we can't. There are far too many churches today for you to take each one and begin praying for them specifically. But what you and I can do, and we need to learn from the Bible how to pray, and we're being taught that part of our life should be spent praying daily, regularly, for the churches around the world. And so you can do it by, by constant. You know, pray for the church in North America. Pray for the church in South America. Pray for the church in Australia. You can uh, get a book like Operation World. Right where every day of the week you just find that day. Today is November 1st, and it'll have a particular country or a particular region. It'll tell you how many Christians we think are there. It'll tell you whether this is an unreached place or a place where the gospel is thriving, and it guides you in praying for the church in that place. Folks, in America, everything is all about us. It's all about us. It's all about our culture. It's all about our lives. God tells us that we need to expand our thinking and our vision to be concerned about the needs of the church all around the world. So we ought to. You need to get magazines like Voice of the Martyrs or others that keep you informed of places on the earth where God's church is particularly suffering, enduring the hardest trials, so that you can pray for them intelligently, pray for them well. If we don't keep these things before our eyes, if we don't use books like Operation World or magazines like Voice of the Martyrs, or there's lots of websites you can look at, if we don't keep these things before us, we will lose sight of them, they will fall out of our prayer life, they will fall out of our attention span, and suddenly it'll be all about Christmas and Thanksgiving and Super Bowl and everything happening here, and and we won't have a thought about God's church around the world. That's not at all 
how Jesus has taught us to live as disciples. And so we need to pray for his grace and his help and being concerned about these things. In your time of personal, private prayer, as well as when we are together, we should be praying for the health of churches in our own city. We should lift up the churches around us as well as our own church. We should pray that all the churches around us and that our own church would be faithful and full. Those are the key words I think of when I think of praying for other churches. Father, make it a faithful church and then fill it up. Don't make it unfaithful and fill it up, right? Make it a faithful church and fill it up. That's what we ought to pray. Now, I know the church is the people of God, not the building. I'm just speaking plain language here. Let's pray for the churches in our community. Let's pray for the churches in our state. Let's pray for the churches around the world. That ought to be a regular part of your life. Paul expressed his love for this church as he communicates to them every day, continually, you are in my prayers. I am interceding for you. Then, if we look back again at verses 9 and 10, we see that specifically, Paul was praying that he would get to see these Christians. He expresses his love by expressing his desire for fellowship with them. Look with me again at verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Now, we should not think that this is all that Paul prayed for this church, but it does seem clear that when he lifted up these Christians before God, he regularly pleaded that God would allow him to visit them. This is a very important truth for us about Christian love. Christian love desires fellowship. What would you think of the marriage where the husband says to the wife, Honey, I love you, but I don't want to be with you. And the wife says to the husband, Husband, I love you, but I don't want to be with you. We'd say that's not real love. That's, That's certainly not the kind of love you want to have in a marriage. That's not the kind of love that ought to characterize Christians either. God has loved us and that love has been expressed by Him bringing us to Himself that we might have fellowship with Him. Jesus died that we would have fellowship with God. God's love is a love that desires fellowship. We have fellowship with God now and we will have fellowship with Him in all its fullness in heaven. If we love one another at this church, we should long for and love true, meaningful fellowship with one another. Not superficial fellowship, but the real thing. Built on the two pillars of encouragement and admonishment. Pointing one another to Christ. Partnering together in worship and service. That's genuine fellowship. It's not not hanging around each other. It's not, it's not getting together and talking about the weather. It's helping each other kill sin. It's helping each other cultivate virtue. It's helping each other be a better witness. It's partnering together and working together and winning the nations. That's, that's genuine fellowship. 
There's an urgency to it. There's a, there's a passionate purpose behind it. It'd be easy to have donuts and coffee and an hour a week and say we have fellowship. But it's not fellowship unless there's urgency and purpose helping each other be holy. That's what we're after. No, I mean, Paul says that, right? He's not, he doesn't want to go there so he can tour Rome, right? He's not, he doesn't want to go there to be on vacation. Hey, I want to hang out with you guys. No. Verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Right? That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, for your edification and indeed for my edification, that we might grow together, I long to see you. Love desires fellowship. Now, Paul had longed to go and be with these people. And yet to this point, God had not allowed it. Paul says in verse 13, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. See, so here is a persistent prayer, a persistent prayer that Paul was lifting up to God, and yet at this point God had not chosen to give Paul what he desired. God's will was the obstacle that had kept Paul from Rome. Sovereignly, God had not allowed Paul's plans to come to fruition. Morally, it appears that God had not brought Paul to a point where he could, where he could choose to go to Rome and know that that was a good and wise decision. Scholars think, and I think it's right, that Paul had made plans to go to, to Rome in the past and that each time he had had to scrap his plan because of pressing concerns elsewhere. He would be preparing to go to the church in Rome and suddenly he would hear of problems in Corinth. Paul, they need you in Corinth. He would be planning to go to, 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 to minister to the church in Rome. Oh, but wait, the church in Galatia, it needs you, Paul. It is certainly possible that he was preparing to go to Rome when the Jews were expelled from Rome. And so he knew the timing wasn't right and had to nix his plan. And so time and again, it appears that God was, was keeping Paul from this prayer that he was praying. Paul knew the reality of unanswered prayer. And I know many of you in here, I think you do, you, you know the reality of unanswered prayer. Paul knew what it was to have God say no when you really wanted Him to say yes. Maybe some of you have been praying for some good thing and yet, though you have been persistent in your praying, though you have been earnest in your praying, God has continued to not grant you that request. In this excellent commentary on Romans, John Murray makes six quick observations about this unanswered prayer of Paul's. Observation one, quoting Murray, the apostle entertained an ardent desire which he made the subject of a specific request to God, but concerning which he did not have certitude that it was God's decretive and providential will to fulfill. In other words, Paul was bringing to God a specific request. I want to go to Rome and minister to this church. But he did not know for sure whether God was going to grant the request. Have you ever been there? 
You have something good that you're asking for, but you don't know, is God going to answer my prayer or not? I just don't know. Observation two. Mary says, the fulfillment of this desire and request had been repeatedly frustrated by the providence of God. This is what we talked about earlier. We make plans, but often God interrupts our plans. You remember what James 4, 13-15 teaches us. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Listen, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. The point being that the Lord's will always trumps our will and His plans always trump our plans. And so Paul had prayed this prayer, but God's will time and again prevented His plans from coming to pass. Observation 3, Murray says, Paul did not for this reason, he did not for this reason cease to entertain the desire and to make requests for its fulfillment. That is, Paul did not stop praying this prayer because God had not answered it in the past. Rather, he remained persistent in this prayer. Maybe there's a prayer that you've been praying for a long time that God has not yet answered. Remember the story that Jesus told of the widow who kept coming to the judge again and again and again? He was stubborn. He was wicked, we're told. This woman deserved justice, but he would not give it to her. But she continued to wear him down by going to him again and again and again until finally, because of her sheer persistence, because he was annoyed, he gave her what she desired. If that's how a wicked judge is, how do you think your perfect father in heaven will hear the persistence of your prayers. In fact, at the beginning of that parable, Luke 18, 1, Luke says that Jesus told that parable to teach us, quote, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. We should, like Paul, persevere in prayer. Observation 4, Murray says, Paul must have been persuaded that it was consonant with the revealed will of God and specifically with his apostolic commission to entertain the desire and always in his prayers to make it the subject of request to God. In other words, Paul must have believed that this request was a good request and an important one to keep praying it as he did. There are some requests that we should not be persistent in. In fact, as we grow in Christ, we will often look back on prayers we've prayed and thank God He did not answer them. Prayers that serve us rather than God, for example, are the kinds of prayers that should not be prayed. If we are persistent in praying those kinds of prayers, we are only being persistent in sin. The chief prayer of our hearts should always be, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And every other request that we make ought to be a part of that end and that aim. Father, glorify your name through this. So Paul's praying, Father, I want you to glorify your name. I want you to make your name known and loved among the nations. And Father, to that end, let me go to Rome. See, Paul's prayer was 
it fit with that ultimate aim. If there's a prayer that you've been praying that does not fit with that ultimate aim, then perhaps that's a prayer that you should not be persistent in, but that you need to let go. But if our request does have the glory of God as its chief aim, then it is appropriate for us to ask, and we should do so again and again and again until God answers or leads us to do otherwise. Observation number five, Murray says Paul resigns himself completely to the will of God in this matter. We do not see Paul acting like Jonah. Jonah knew that it was best for him to be on his way to Nineveh, but he chose instead to flee to Tarshish. Well, Paul at times made plans to go to Rome, but God revealed to him through some means, maybe through a messenger or some other way, that he was needed elsewhere, and we don't find Paul going to Rome anyway. Rather, he submitted himself to the will of God. God, you know my prayer is to go visit this church in Rome. But God, I can see that there's a need here, and that at this moment it is wisest and best for your glory for me to go here. I'm not going to fight your will. I'm going to do as you say. So he was humble. He submitted himself to God. He denied himself what he desired and did what was wisest and best. While we pray persistently for God to answer our prayers, we must also resign ourselves completely to the will of God in whatever matter it is. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen to this very carefully. Often, not always, but often it is God's way to humble us by saying no for a while in order to prepare us for when he says yes. Last observation that Marie makes is this. The importunity, that's the, the constant going back again, the importunity of request is not incompatible with uncertainty as to the final outcome the ordained providence of God. In other words, it is not wrong or unreasonable to continue asking God for some good thing even when you don't know ultimately whether He in His wisdom will ever grant it. In Paul's case, God did eventually answer his prayer. But it was probably not in the way that Paul had in mind. When Paul made it to Rome, he made it in chains, didn't he? Yet God brought Paul to Rome in chains, and through his chains, not only gave him a productive ministry there, but made him an encouragement and an example to believers throughout the empire and even to believers in our own day. What's more, by answering Paul's prayer in a way that meant he came to Rome in chains and meant that he was able to speak the gospel to some of the most powerful men of the day before judges and before kings, before magistrates. And so God's way was best and God's timing was best. And in the end, God did give Paul the desire of his heart. What about us? What about those prayers that we've been lifting up to God for years and years? Consider the example of George Mueller. When George Mueller was a young man, he had three friends who were not Christians. And he began to pray that God would save them. 
we are told that he prayed for these three friends every day of his life for 60 years. These men remained unsaved, and Mueller continued to pray. Then, just before George Mueller's death at age 92, two of these three men came to Christ. One of them was converted at what was probably the very last service George Mueller ever preached. And then, within a year after his death and funeral, the third man also came to Christ. I'm not going to remember the quote exactly, but I remember uh, reading James Boyce's commentary, and he says, he says, Friends, should you keep praying if God has not answered your prayer? And he says something like this, Will it always remain an, an unanswered prayer? You simply do not know. So keep praying and keep praying. Let us always pray and not lose heart. Here is the summary of how Paul displays love in these verses. He expresses love through his gratitude, love through his constant prayer for them, love through his desire for fellowship with them. Let us, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church, be marked by our gratitude for one another, by our intercessory prayer for one another, and by our love for genuine fellowship with one another. Amen? All right. Before we pray, are there any questions uh, about our message this morning on Paul's greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, or on uh, this passage concerning Paul's love for the church in Rome?